Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I'm delighted to welcome to the programme somebody who will probably be well known to a large proportion of the TMR audience, none other than Dr. J. Michael Bennett otherwise known in a previous incarnation as uh, Dr. Future, host of the much-loved and influential Future Quake radio show. J. Michael Bennett holds a doctorate in mechanical engineering and has worked as a Defense Department scientist, a successful high-tech inventor and entrepreneur with a good number of patents to his name. He also produced the influential Future Quake show for local radio and the internet. His work has been profiled on PBS, CNN, Scientific American, amongst others. He was also... And this is intriguing. I shall ask about this in a minute. He was also once invited to be a speaker on religious matters for a United Nations NGO. And he and his wife live in Nashville. And his books can be found at a website called, believe it or not, MikeBennettBooks.com. Mike, great to be speaking with you. Thanks very much for coming on The Mind Renewed. It is an absolute privilege to be on here. And I'm so happy that you invited me to come. And for your uh, listeners as well to be with them, they're a very erudite uh, crowd. And because of the dignity of it, I have made sure to dress in a tuxedo today to show you the proper respect uh, for this. <laughs> well, you're, you're a master of it, flattery as well. You've uh, flattered me and you flattered all the audience. So everybody will be keen to listen to what you've got to say for the next item of flattery that comes along. Um, so Mike or Dr. Future, I don't know what to call you. What, what shall I call you during this interview? Um, well... Probably heretic or something like that will devolve into that as we go. But if you if you want to call me Mike or Michael, that would be fine. Okay, well, I'll call you Mike, but let's stick to Dr. Future sometimes, okay? I've got to have the, the permission from you sometimes to call you Dr. Future. What do you think? Well, can I slip in a Brother Julia now and then? <laughs> yes, okay. I okay. come from the Bible Belt, the uh, revivalist circuit, so I, I want to be able to put that in there a little bit occasionally if that's okay. That's okay, as long as it's B-R-O dot bro yes yes <laughs> that's right you'll be a bro uh, it's very good to be speaking to you after all this time because you kindly sent me your book um which we're going to be talking about let's give the title to it two masters and two gospels volume one let's be clear about that it's just volume one oh, i don't know how many more you're going to write how many more are you going to write do you know uh right now i'm planning three three which is not very many for me <laughs> uh and that's based upon the material i've already written so um, I'm going to try my best to keep it at three. Yeah. As you can see, it's a little verbose. It's a breezy, like 480 pages in total. Absolutely. About 428 of text and then an index and all that kind of stuff, in notes on it. Yeah. I work by the adage of why say it in 10 words when 100 will do. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. That occurred to me as well, um, but you beat me to it. Um, so you sent me this several weeks ago now, and uh, I know I've frustrated you a bit by uh, reading it extremely slowly, but you probably thought I was going to get back to you, but I did get back to you. So anyway, thanks for your patience and for sending the book, um, which I did enjoy. Mm -hmm. uh, very challenging, very engaging book, but I, you know, I'm going to stick to that word challenging particularly, and that will become very obvious as we have this conversation it's 419 pages, 477 with those notes at the end. So it is quite a lot to get through, but I do recommend people do try to get through this book because it's challenging and it's also something that really makes you think about how you are living your life as a Christian in the modern world, and which is an extremely important thing for us to, to think about. Um, I do think um, you said it's verbose. I do think it is rather verbose at times, isn't it? Um, 
long sentences, you have long paragraphs, masses of semicolons. It's like reading a 19th century text sometimes. Now, I like that. <laughs> but why did you do it that way? Yeah, it's riddled with semicolons and dashes. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, I tried to teach Chesterton uh, how to write a book. You know, the reason why is these are complicated concepts. These are complex things, and when you start bringing them up into little micro-declarative sentences, that might work well on Facebook or the little bumper sticker uh, theology you know, that we get in the memes. Hmm. But I'm afraid I believe our issues are a lot more complicated than that, and I would like to at least elevate my Christian culture to start reading stuff similar to what they read in their sixth-grade book learning challenges. You know, I had one of the senior people in the Christian world that's really a sort of a top insider in working for major Christian media. Um, he really liked my book, but he confided in me. He said, your book is too long. And he said, also, he said, you need to print to be a whole lot bigger. <laughs> and I says, well, should I put a lot of pictures in it too? <laughs> you know, uh, maybe yeah. like a pop-up, you know, when you open it up. But that's basically where the discourse is gone. In fact, one day I plan to write a book called A Trip to the Christian Bookstore, which just assesses the state of our Christian intellectualism by what's on the front shelf and top shelf in the Christian bookstore, because that tells quite a story. Mm. Um, when we weigh the wisdom of a Christian work by its weight and the scale, you know, what the size of the book is and how many words are there in it, rather than the content of what's inside. You know, I cover quite a swath of history in this book. You certainly do. As well as trying to have sort of an integrated view. And it certainly is not the final word on everything. It doesn't mm. cover. It has its own bias of the of the author. Mm. But the attempt is to try to raise up to the kind of books I read when I was young, to try to raise the level of our discourse. And I'm not mm. saying I'm the, the centerpiece of all that, but I would like to be part of the way for us to look at things more like adults. Mm -hmm. And that means we have to sit down and turn off all of the other media and get a nice comfortable chair and set aside some time to be patient and read stuff, even if it's a few pages at a time, mm. as Christians, just to be role models for everybody else in our society. That's exactly right. Uh, I think in order to concentrate on your book, it would be necessary to turn off other distractions and indeed to read it bit by bit. There's no way you could just concentrate on this book and just read it all the way through there's no way you could do that not only is it those hundreds of pages long but you have to really wrestle with the text both in terms of the style but also the content of the i mean not only are you challenging but you're quite confrontational in your style aren't you you apologize for that in the text as i was going along reading it i partly thought to myself i don't like being uh, complained at but on the other hand right. it works you know i got the idea that you were engaging in hyperbole but the way in which you do that brings across the importance of the message. Well, let's let's get on to that message. I'm going to paraphrase, can, if I may. Can, can I give a little? Can I give a little preamble to that as we get into the content? Okay. Uh, and I appreciate your your very insightful comment on that. <laughs> By the way, I believe, like the old phrase, "You only hurt the ones you love." Mm -hmm. um, this is a message between brethren. I don't mean. I don't know if this is an American term of getting on your high horse. But when you get to the point where you feel like you've arrived and you're pointing your finger down at anybody, that's when it's time to get knocked off. And I recognize that this kind of tone sets me up in that position for hypocrisy. Mm. But at the same time, um, 
one thing I'm very curious about your read on this is that mm-hmm. being somewhere different than most of the interviewers and people who have read my book, being uh, in the British Isles and being in a little different culture, mm-hmm. um, I am steeped in the Bible Belt culture here. And to a term that would be commonly known as a religious right, this is the culture I was raised in, I was taught in. Mm-hmm. This is where I you know, worshiped at church. And the tone that we hear now, particularly in the last few years, is something that you may encounter on the Internet. But I would guess in your day-to-day discourse, it maybe it's not as severe where you are. I don't know for sure. But things are pretty bad here. Things are pretty bad here. That's correct. Yeah. I, I said that to you in, in, in email conversations we were having that this – well, it made it easier for me to read the book in some ways because although I – part of it I did feel was directed towards me because necessarily we're, we're all caught up in this to some extent. I didn't feel that it was mainly <laughs> aimed at me and so uh-huh. it made it easier for me to read this. This is a – it's a lamentation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. when it uh, gets on to political matters that are very American-centric, then obviously I do have a distance there. So when you get on to talking about Donald Trump, you know, that was easier for me to listen to than I think a lot of people maybe in the US. Um, and we'll get on to that in, in a minute. Can I just right. – can I come to this – I've got this little paragraph written here. Okay. Which is my attempt to encapsulate the book, and I'm going to invite you straight away to – if you want, correct me or to expand upon this, but this is just to give an idea of what your book is like. So I'm saying that it's basically challenging Christians, using a lot of historical data, illuminating how so much of Christianity has come to the point of needing such questions asked of it. What do you think you are doing, O Christian, so often siding with the rich and the powerful, when the one in whom you claim to believe, Jesus Christ, so very clearly sided with the poor and powerless? Question mark. Now, that is the best that I can do to sum up what you're essentially saying. So go on, where am I wrong and how can that be extended? Well, you know, if this message had been given in your hands instead of mine, there, there would be no opportunity for a book because you basically <laughs> summarized it all in one sentence. <laughs> I know I'm not as breveloquent as you are. Um, you're a very eloquent man, actually. Well, I'm, I'm saying breveloquent. I'm sure you would describe yourself as breveloquent, right? You mean eloquent in brevity, is that right? Well, actually, it's an original word, breveloquent, and it means uh, using very few words, concise. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I use that is because on my email today, the word popped up, breveloquent, and I made it a vow today that I would use it before the sun closed. So now I have used breveloquent in a sentence. Okay. Well, I've got to try and get flocking house and hill pilification if I can. <laughs> I'll try hard. <laughs> Please pass on the word of breveloquent. You know, I was also going to mention that it was if an occult hand took over me when I wrote this book. <laughs> because if you mentioned the phrase as if an occult hand Anywhere in the media, you become what's called the Order of the Occult Hand, which was started in the American press, I think, back in the 60s or 70s. And it was a little inside joke of a journalist in America where any kind of story of local interest, they would use this term as if an occult hand had done something. <laughs> and it was actually exposed, I think, like 30 years later. So I've got that behind me. <laughs> Back to your question. Yes. It, it, yes. Your, your summary – 
if people wanted to save themselves 480 pages, yes. That's the gist of it, and I just slightly elaborate on it. More than slightly, particularly with all this historical data, because you have got a lot there to wade through. But that sounds negative. I don't mean that, actually. That's that's actually the most fascinating part of the book, and a big chunk of the book, this data, which is historically sourceable. So, yeah, absolutely. You, you Very see, interesting. I, I, you have to understand my background on why I do it like this. I come from a science background. I was a scientist. My PhD is in science and engineering, worked in defense area and other industries. And I write for skeptics. And that's where I feel called to as a Christian right now is to write mm. for people who are highly offended by anything that I broach or put forward. And so when you write academic journal papers and things, you have to have your ducks in a row of your information to such an extent that it withstands peer review. Hmm. And I assume that from the people that I interact with in recent years, my fellow Christians are so repulsed by some of the ideas I bring, even just quoting Jesus and other passages of Scripture, that I feel like I almost have to checkmate them. That if they have 10 reasons why they're resistant to an assertion I make, I have to address all 10 for them to sort of cry uncle and to say, well, maybe you've got a point. And if I only cover nine, I find I've accomplished nothing because they'll cling to the tenth. And you're a perceptive reader. I, you've noticed in my forward, I mentioned that the people I talk about, I don't mean to do a broad brush on every Christian or every American Christian or even every conservative American Christian or religious right person. There are examples. I write about the general culture that I've been exposed to for half a century and a time to finally just set with the scripture and really give it the overdue critique that it needed. Mm. Um, but this information is here to assist the reader to overcome all of their resistance from everything they've heard. And as you know, in my book, I show that there has been an intended plot mm. for probably around 70 to 80 years by people who had a financial interest in teaching people, people like me, God-fearing people in church, another gospel. And it's a little hard to reprogram that in one single book by one stranger to somebody. So I get my little pitch for a few minutes of their time to overcome an indoctrination that has gone on for decades of their life. Hmm. And so I have to make the best pitch I can when I have their attention. You see, that's interesting because I said that you use um, hyperbole, and I think that's just one little example of that. You pick up on what Paul says about another gospel. And, you know, from what you've just said there, you People could be forgiven for thinking that this conspiracy to influence American conservative Christianity has given rise to a completely other gospel. Now, you're not saying that, are you? You're not saying that what we now have is a form of Christianity which is totally heretical. Well, I think what people need to know is what I really do believe. Uh, I believe basically the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the essentials of the gospel that Christ was uh, born of a virgin— uh, lived a sinless life, died vicariously in atonement for our sins, was raised again on the third day, and offers eternal life of all of us who put our trust in him. I consider that orthodox. Absolutely. And, what you might call conservative evangelical Christianity. Right. That's and what not, it might be called in, in, in this country anyway. So right. I recognize that as being fairly mainstream to what most people would think of as Christianity and in the U.S. So how come you maintain well, another gospel has somehow taken root. 
to which the question I ask, why do so many of these evangelicals, when they read my information, why do they consider me a heretic for the questions I pose in this book? Yeah, interesting. <laughs> that, that leads one to think there must be some other gospel working in there. And again, this was written to be redemptive in nature and to help advance all of us in the kingdom. It's not meant to destroy anything or destroy anybody or create division. Uh, although that might be sometimes an outcome, it was meant to advance all of our ability to work for the kingdom better. Mm -hmm. But the other gospel I'm talking about may still have all of those essential points that I just mentioned to you, but it may be devoid of most everything else that our Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount mm -hmm. or the priorities, what he called the weightier matters of the law. Mm -hmm. If mm -hmm. it's missing the weightier matters of the law, um, justice, mercy, and faith— then I argue that it is another gospel. It may talk of Jesus and speak well of him. It may speak well of other things. Mm. But as uh, Paul said, if anybody else preach another gospel to you, let them be accursed. And I don't seek to accurse anybody, but I do mm. believe that we need to search our own hearts, and as the Bible says, to shake everything so that that which cannot be shaken remains. Mm. And what I argue in this book is that there's some pretty strange characters that had a major and particularly a financial incentive to basically scissor out almost everything short of the statement of redemption and replace the values of Jesus with a different set of values that served a purpose of somebody else. Right. And I drank that swell for 50 plus years mm. and have just started asking questions. So it's almost a process of my own reprogramming in the process of writing this book. They say you don't know a subject until you teach it, hmm. and that was part of the process of me writing this book. Yeah, that's actually very helpful, this little image that you've created here of cutting out aspects of the gospel, leaving the redemptive aspect in place, but cutting out a lot of the heart of the, the gospel. That does make sense. So it's not completely other gospel, it's a distorted gospel. And I think the case that you make, the historical case that you make for this having taken place is very strong, actually, um, which is really helpful for us to understand the current situation. Mm -hmm. um, I know that we're arguing semantics here. I'm going to try to get away from this as soon as possible, but but uh, I don't want to use the term, you know, an other gospel because uh, that could create an unnecessary polarity with people thinking, oh, well, you're, you know, you're saying well, Christianity is all wrong or something like that. You're not saying that. As you say, it's redemptive, your message. So, Well, thanks for clarifying. <laughs> thanks for clarifying that. And people heard what I believe, mm -hmm, and I believe the words of Scripture, mm -hmm. And what my goal is, is to shock people who've been raised in church their whole life like me mm. to go back and take it at its face value. Yes. It's shocking for us to find how we can be drawn by strangers and the people mm. who've influenced us really are strangers into reading those scriptures every time when we're sitting in church, but yet walk away with a worldview that does not match what the simple words of those scriptures say. Even those of us who pray every day, we read our Bibles every day, we're faithful in church. How could this happen? Mm -hmm. Again, I don't mean to overdramatize it, but sometimes people need a little shaking, you know, and the garbage can lid hitting in the in the barracks to get people to think about what's happened so subtly under our nose. It's a beginning of an assessment to me of what other things have I accepted and where did this information come from by who? Because it's certainly not within the pages of Scripture. Yes. One reason why I call it another gospel is the verse I quote at the beginning of the book where Jesus says, no man can serve two masters. Mm. You'll love one or hate the other, and you cannot serve God and money. When you have two masters, I assert, in effect, you have two gospels. 
with a master comes his own gospel or the wishes of the master that you're serving under. And we don't want to be double-minded. The most terrifying scripture I see in all of scripture that makes me shudder in my shoes is when I see the people that see the Lord one day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these wonderful things, your name, and cast out demons and all this? And these poor souls that he mentions somehow had self-deluded themselves to something that missed the main jest of what our Lord was all about and what he was trying to accomplish. And I would hate to think that myself or any of us would ever find ourselves in that horrific state. And it's those words, isn't it? Get away from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. Right. I never knew you. Yeah. They are haunting words, and uh, it's good to keep those in mind. It really is. Right. Um, and this, this may seem a really strange thing to do now. We're, oh, we're just getting into the meat of this book. Um, but I don't think there's any other chance of doing this. I want to do it now. Um, I want to talk about your documentary, okay. the, uh, Dark Clouds Over Elberton, because I wanted to speak to you about this a few years back, probably around when it came out, but I think it's 2015, something like that. And uh, I sent a message to the distribution company and I never heard back. And I just put it out of my mind, but uh, um, I've recently seen it. Uh, it's not easy to come by, but you gave me a clue as to how I could get to see it. Um, and I was really, really interested in this movie. So this was Dark Clouds Over Elberton. So it's an investigation into the building of the Georgia Guidestones by this uh, mysterious well, the guy who ordered the construction to take place, this guy called R.C. Christian. And the question has been there, who is this person? And the reason why I'm interested in this, because several years ago, I spoke to Dr. Stanley Monteith about the issue of population control. And this just came up in the conversation. He said, oh, you know, there are the uh, Georgia Guidestones there. And if you read these new Ten Commandments that, that are there on the stones, you know, it's very chilling. It speaks of a population control agenda in elite circles behind the scenes. And this is kind of the, the public face of that. And so that's been very interesting intriguing to me over the years but your documentary which i think is very convincing very compelling very evidentially goes into the building of this and trying to sleuth out who this person rc christian was and uh, you come up with some really interesting and convincing conclusions as to who this person was what was motivating them and it sort of intersects with the concerns that dr stanley monteith has but doesn't quite bear out the full picture that he was trying to paint there. Um, Could you just give us an idea of what the documentary is about and who R.C. Christian was? Yes. Well, I do want to make clear that the listener get the uh, suggestion that what you're saying is that I have brokered a hypothesis of the nature of who R.C. Christian is. (laughs) There's certainly much more than that. Mm-hmm. The enigmatic figure that used the pseudonym R.C. Christian that built what they call America Stonehenge, his actual letters with his signature and I have his address, home address, are in my safety deposit box. Okay. So it's a little bit more than the standard hypothesis of what you see on the History Channel or right. National Geographic or, you know, the usual suspects. Hmm. Um, because they have hypothesized endlessly on potentialities. And I'm sorry about your issue with the distributor. Even though I'm listed as a co-producer and I did the research on the work, I don't have any connection with the gentleman who did it in It was a little bit of a shotgun wedding, I'll just say it that way, with the two of us on doing this. So I don't have any, and I certainly don't have any uh, economic connection to it or whatsoever. But I do think it's an important story for people to know. And it's a real-life Da Vinci Code. Mm. Uh, You know, we see these uh, fake things, and then you watch some of these reality TV shows, and they have these staged encounters and things like this. 
None of that was staged in the documentary, and hmm. it, it requires the same kind of patience as it is to read my book. Um, <laughs> for people who aren't familiar with the Georgia Gadstones, it begins by very painstakingly getting the testimony. You could almost call them uh, depositions of all of the figures who were on the periphery in uh, the little small town of Elberton that were contacted to be a part of building this enigmatic monolith. And so these people were getting very, very old. They may even be deceased by now. But all of these people and also their encounter with this enigmatic figure, what they picked up about his nature, little things they picked up in his accent or things he mentioned offhand, are an ultimate whodunit. Uh, And there's only one man who ever actually claimed he was told the real identity of R.C. Christian when he showed up in town and wanted to build this massive monolith, the, the banker in town. And we were able to get probably the last interview of the banker. And that's when things got interesting is when literal treasure chests start showing up on camera, uh, unstaged. Well, that's what I wanted and, to ask you. That really was unstaged. Wasn't it? We were yeah. really seeing that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was fantastic. You actually yeah. see the, the letters being sort of pulled out and you could see an address and you would then sort of highlight that and take a – obviously, that was done with editing. You'd take a little snapshot of what was picked up by the camera. But it was in real time being picked up by the camera, was it, as he was opening up this old computer box? Yeah. As I drug it out of the back of his shed, <laughs> and we got literally seconds of taking a glimpse at these letters. Yeah. And this was a IBM typewriter case or computer case that had only been rumored about in the Los Angeles Times. I don't know if the CNN story mentioned it, but he had told everybody it had been destroyed. And we were able to get out of him an interview that it still existed because yeah, he said he kept it because he thought he might write about it one day, didn't he? But, uh, right. But he didn't. Right. But he was at an age then that he was – right. Uh, he developed a rapport with us because we were all Christians. Yes. We let him give his testimony. And I believe while he did not want to give the direct name of R.C. Christian, no. I believe indirectly he wanted to get things settled for his own conscience sake mm. and gave us an access that he had never – gave to anyone else. Mm. And I called him afterwards and explained, you know, the things that we knew and if he was okay with it. And he certainly was. He said, just go in God's grace. That's really interesting. That's an absolutely fascinating part of the documentary. I highly recommend people watch this. I mean, I love this part yeah. of it in particular, because he didn't compromise his position at all, did he? He didn't um, give us he, the name. Actually, I'm not even sure that in real time he was quite aware of the amount of information that you were getting from these postage marks and addresses. It didn't come over to me that he was really aware. Well, but it's amazing how you did piece that together, and you actually identified this person. It's remarkable. Yeah, I didn't even know it was on camera. I was standing over, and I got a one-second glimpse of a dress that my feeble memory tried to, you know, the name wasn't on it, but the address was there. I had to sort of seal it in my mind, and it wasn't until long after we did everything that we discover that it had been captured very briefly on camera at an odd angle. But, I mean, it's a classic whodunit. Yeah, and, uh, it really is. Basically, what I had to do was a lot of skullduggery to figure out who was at this address, when were they there, And the fact that the man was a prolific inventor and patenter like I was, Hmm. and I was familiar with going through patent literature for my own work, Hmm. I was able to confirm a name and address and a time right at the time he was meeting to get the Georgia Gadstones built. Hmm. Uh, And then things got really weird (laughs) because all of the characters we talked to there, including one of the richest men in Georgia, not Ted Turner, but another man that's not as well known – 
who gave us access to the construction documents, none of these people knew that we had glimpsed in that chest or even that it existed. Mm-hmm. So as it turned out, everybody we talked to were giving us bits and pieces yeah. with them being ignorant of the information that we had. Mm-hmm. It was a strange circumstance to be in. Everybody gave pieces of it, and it turned out we were the most knowledgeable of putting it all mm-hmm. together. And it all dovetailed exactly uh, to the point, as you see toward the end, I actually interview a circuit court judge in another state who's basically, from his knowledge, able to verify you know, everything that we put forward Mm -hmm. and it gets into some weird potential like cultish, old ancient cultish organizations, um, and Nobel laureate, Mm -hmm. uh, some very, very disturbing ideological connections and people that viewers would know. Um, but it goes in a total different direction than all the hypotheses that you'll see on the internet. You know, people are disappointed that it didn't involve UFOs or <laughs> some aeronephilim or something like that. And therefore, they tend to debunk it because it didn't fit their pet understanding. But there's smoking gun evidence right on the camera of what it is. But in my opinion, it's actually far darker hmm. because what we show is there's people in the heartland of America – not only in the sleepy little town where the structure was built by regular church-going people who didn't seem to have any kind of problem with the occult significance and the very uh, draconian prescriptions on the Gadstones, but also in the heartland of the originators, uh, men of high upstanding and approval who had sort of an alter ego life that none of their neighbors knew about. Yeah. And I assume this is just the tip of the iceberg. Mm. While we identify a couple of the, the main culprits, there are other players, I'm sure, that are still yet to be discovered, including confirming the documents we have if, in fact, they are the ones that are down inside the time capsule underneath it. Oh, yes, the time capsule. So yes. to me, there's just a different level of disconcerting information because under our sleepy, all-American Christian culture – There are people doing activities that we don't understand in ideologies that are a lot darker. And I'm sure you cover a lot of that on your show and and different topics, but it's a classic case in point of that. Yeah, indeed. What I found interesting about it is that it's often looked upon as being direct evidence of something huge. You know, as if R.C. Christian was a member of some massive elitist group that is directly behind pushing for a new world order and that sort of thing. Well, it, right. it isn't really that, is it? But it is indicative of a certain elitist attitude, as you say, behind the scenes, hidden, right. that speaks of something, as you say, you know, it's tip of the iceberg, speaks of something much larger. Mm-hmm. So again, it's not direct evidence, but it doesn't contradict those suspicions Yet I mentioned something in line with that Hmm. when I talk about the very quiet, seemingly unobtrusive Hmm. activities of these very, you know, we're not talking about, you know, the Bill Gateses of the world. We're talking about (laughs) figures that are well known in their region and community, well respected. Hmm. But when I was invited to speak at a United Nations conference on religion and spirituality. Oh, yes. I wanted to ask you about that anyway. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. uh, Is one of the keynotes. Same group that Edgar Mitchell, the astronaut, would go to. A lot of the guys off coast to coast are invited. Uh, It's under the U.N. auspices. Um, When I was there in Montreal, I was the only person that was not a spirit channeler or medium (laughs) out of about 300 participants. Uh, The rest of them were actively involved in invoking spirits. (laughs) But when I talked in in the hallways to some people, there was just some sweet older women there 
that look like the kind of women that would be bringing casserole or, or you know, dishes to our <laughs> church function. These kind of women that I would certainly feel welcome. And I remember one of them in particular telling me about how at her home right in middle America, uh, this sweet uh, senior woman uh, had altars built to the Queen of Heaven, like you read about in the Old Testament, hmm. and how they baked cakes for, you know, like Tammuz, the Weeping of Tammuz and Semiramis. And she says, oh, yeah, we have these all over the country in our homes. You know, we have them in the back rooms. But we do this at home, and it made me think of the passage, I believe, in Ezekiel, when he was shown that horrible vision of what was really going on in the temple, and about all of the priests bowing to the east and to the sun, and he kept seeing more and more atrocities as he went deeper inside the walls of the temple. And I don't mean to scare people and over-sensationalize. We've got no. way too much of that going on today. Yeah, 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 but just yeah. the stuff we can verify tells me that maybe we don't need to be looking so much for people with horns and pitchforks running around. You know, uh, building bonfires and that. Maybe things are a little bit more subtle, but even darker hmm. in their own way. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah. Well, I hope that hasn't spooked too many people. Uh, it is a, a really fascinating, convincing, and well-produced documentary, and I highly recommend it. It's really difficult to get hold of, though, in the UK. There's no PAL format of the DVD available. It's available on Amazon Prime only in the US, or at least it's not available here in the UK. So the only way that uh, it was possible to get hold of it here was through Vimeo. Uh-huh. So that's about it, really. So while that still lasts, I recommend anybody over here to try and get hold of it that way. Um one thing you said was that none of it was staged. Well, it's not quite true, is it? Because R.C. Christian himself was played by an actor, wasn't he? Oh, well, let me take that back. I didn't have anything to do with that. Oh, part right, of it. Yeah. I was the one doing the real life venture. It worked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Later, I think the uh, the guy who did the editing was trying to look at least that portion like a History Channel kind of thing, yeah. where they'll take a segment to do a reenactment to explain what happened for somebody who's a neophyte. But that only lasts for probably a minute or two, sure. uh, where they're showing like what really happened on the day when he came. Yes, yes, with yes. the actor who actually was the announcer on the Future Quake show. Oh, okay. uh, just a little tidbit for the uh, <laughs> audience. All right. uh, no, it's not a problem. It was completely obvious, because it was obvious that it couldn't possibly have been him, because you were talking about things in the past, and yet right. this was modern film with this guy walking around. So yeah, it was obvious it wasn't him and it, it worked totally but i just thought they should make it done. clear that there was just a little element of drama about it which is fair enough a couple yeah. minutes a couple minutes but what they should have done in the old school way is have the little shimmery effect when you have like a memory and you fade back you, you know what i'm talking about the old thing in the movies i, I know yes, where the yes, screen yes. would start to use a vignette shimmer. or something yeah, yeah. that would have that's now right. people like my vintage would have understood oh okay he's having a flashback yeah, yeah, yeah so that's basically it was the equivalent of a uh, just to explain to people what the heck was going on. Okay, and I will also forgive them the music, which was at times, you know, a little creepy. But you know, it, it is creepy, so why not? No, I thought it was a it was a really good documentary, and I hope people go and look at that. Okay, well, that's and, I don't, with- and I don't and I don't vouch for anything of that production company. I don't vouch for anything else they release. Mm-hmm. There might be small elements and individuals that I agree with, but the rest of it. I'm going in a different direction, so I don't want people to assume that. And they may think the lesser of me for my distancing, but again, it was a shotgun wedding at a point in time. It was shelved for five years, and after much insistence on my behalf, I finally was able to get the gentleman to release it. Um, so I guess that's it. Okay. Well, I, I take note of that, and I hope listeners take note of that disclaimer. Fair enough. Anyway, that's not what we're talking about today. How about that? We've been talking for three quarters of an hour, and uh, we're still not getting into the meat of your book. So let's do that now. So the book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1. 
And the subtitle actually is The Teaching of Jesus Versus the Leaven of the Pharisees in Talk Radio and Cable News. So I think most people will be familiar, of course, with the the first bit, yeah, the Leaven of the Pharisees, but um, Talk Radio and Cable News. I mean, how does that fit into what you're saying in this book? What are you referring to here? How is that leaven? That was the catalyst of even writing the book to begin with, uh-huh. because I was writing my Holy War Chronicles series, which was supposed to be a single book and now looks to be about a breezy 12 volume read. <laughs> and I was trying to finish that up. And uh, I've noticed things that are going on that have heated up a lot here in the last few years in America during the last election cycle and just before that where the normal tensions in our discourse have amped up to about a level 10, Mm. and that's just within Christian circles. Mm. I mean, we've got virtual civil wars going on, Mm. even in the discourse amongst Christians. Uh, It's that bad in America right now. And I guess what it finally clicked with me is I saw this, and the comments that I see being made to me are more strident. They're more arrogant. They're more uh, condescending toward people who are outsiders like immigrants, minorities, women, people that are different for any other reason. And how rather than even just merely tolerating them, it's gotten to the point where they're part of some nefarious thing that we've got to stop them at the border, even if by machine gun. And the Christians are leading the charge here. Uh, I'm not saying all of them. But I'm saying amongst what would be classified, this is a term that people would see that's inflammatory, but it's hard for me to avoid it, uh, the religious right, okay. uh, which encapsulates a big part of evangelicals, but also their peers in Roman Catholicism, mainline Protestantism, and elsewhere. So for lack of a better term, I will use that. Um, but in my discourse, and that's the circle in the Bible Belt here in Nashville that I'm immersed in the center of, in my church life and family— Um, What I found was that the arguments on public issues, social issues, whatever's going on, the nature of the arguments and what underpinned people's positions were not the statements in the Bible, the words of Jesus, words of the apostles, prophets, but actually it was talking points that I recognized and had heard from my now limited exposure to talk radio and cable news. Mm. And I found it remarkable that my fellow Christians, conservative Christians, Bible-believing Christians involved, you know, there whenever the church doors are open, what bolstered their arguments were things that I recognize as actual talking point cliches that at one day in time proliferate through all of the normal channels of the popular talk radio. And I thought, why is this as Christians? Why is it not thus saith the Lord or our Savior said this or taught this. Why are these the words that they're using? And hence why I use this uh, literary concept of another gospel, mm. because that really was sort of what was dictating their mindset and their arguments on how to address the outer world. Yeah, it's just really interesting because one of the things you say in this part of the book is that a lot of people are treating the information that comes from talk radio or these media outlets as if it somehow is sermon. Right. You know, they might hear their 30-minute sermon or whatever it is, 45 minutes if you're lucky, at a church, um, whether that would be a, a sermon that's full of theological meat is, a, is another matter. Right. Um, but uh, nevertheless, they would be hearing this day in, day out in the commute or while they're making a meal or whatever it is, but they would be hearing it in a way that's analogous to actually sitting in the church and listening to the Word of God being expanded. 
Exactly. And, you know, when they're in church, if they're lucky to get a half hour and it may or may not be a sermon about the kingdom of heaven or sermon on the mount or the values that the Lord has given us from the kingdom. And if so, they may or may not be concentrating, focused. They may be drugged there by their spouse. Their mind may be elsewhere which probably all of us at times have been subject to. But the rest of the week, they're a captive audience in their commuting car, listening to this on a one-on-one audience, being fed information for maybe 45 minutes. Many times they can turn it on in their office, listen to it. They get the same exposure on their way home, and then they prepare their meal, turn on cable television, and get more of it before they go to bed. And it's six, maybe even seven days a week. Often they catch it on Sunday morning, even before they get in their car and go to church. So, you know, anybody with a basic knowledge of statistics and maybe a little psychology understands that they're being saturated with messaging. And it's the same principle if you're around a television. Let's say you work at home and a television in the background and you hear the same stupid commercial over and over and over again in a jingle. And you may hate that jingle, but you're going to start singing it and you'll remember the product. And it may have even turned you off on that product because it's so stupid, but they know they're experts at knowing how to put a worm in your brain. And the same thing happens. So I, I believe we have really been programmed. And I don't mean that it's somebody with a, a dish pointed at our house or, or a little spinning disc for us to stare at, but something much more effective. And as the years go by, I would say people could recite the average really good salt of the earth Christians I know. They could recite those talking points and presuppositions far better than the basic principles of the Sermon on the Mount. Ooh. And, and and I guess to get on to the leaven of the Pharisees point, um, I had sort of a, a minor epiphany one day in church as we were going through the Gospels. I realized as the Pharisees, who are sort of the villains who pop up occasionally and do their foul deeds, um, that I realized that when Jesus sort of threw a blanket over their whole ideology, he called it the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, then it clicked with me that the points that they made and the values that they had was exactly matching what I was well-versed in in talk radio and cable news. It was the mindset of the wealth class, Hmm. that there is innate virtue in being able to make high profits, lots of money, and a single-minded devotion to increasing it as much as possible, Hmm. uh, to devalue working people, to devalue uh, any kind of benefits for working people or their well-being, uh, the the concept of hyper-dominionism over the environment rather than being caretakers, as God originally asked us to be in the garden and to mind the garden, but to exploit it, to make that last little cent of profit, um, to basically make government, which was actually set up by God, to make it the ultimate enemy, so as to give a pass to the great city Babylon— which the Bible says trades in the souls of men, and to get rid of the one secular gatekeeper that God set up to create a balance of power, to protect the common folk who don't have the kind of money to protect themselves against a corporate environment that is an amoral, sort of like a a golem, you might say. It's not a human entity that responds to morality, responds to a conscience. It basically responds to the quarterly profit statement. Yeah, and so in reading your book, you can come over as if you're anti-capitalist, 
you do use the term capitalist quite a lot in a negative sense, but I get the impression that that would be to, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but to misunderstand you, because you do say at a certain point in the book that maybe capitalism, considering the way the world is and the way we are, is the best we can do. As I, I think I said to you in an email, you know, a bit like that. Uh, I think it's, I think it's Churchill who said, you know, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other, right. t- all the other forms, right. something like that. So I don't get the impression that you are completely against the capitalist model, as it were. I mean, I, th- I think of somebody like, um, and very famously, John Perkins, um, who, you know, the economic hitman guy wrote that book. Right, who, who, right. Who, you know, is on record as saying, I am a capitalist. I believe in the market, but I believe in responsible capitalism. And that is what we've lost. Mm-hmm. We've lost it with the neoliberal excesses. We've lost it with disaster capitalism, mm-hmm. the worship of the corporation and crony corporatism, etc. Right. So, I mean, do you agree? I mean, am I characterizing you yeah. correctly when I say that you, you know, you're not anti-capitalist, but you seek a real proper capitalism if we could regain that? Well, I, I guess I would use some asymmetric warfare in our discussion here mm-hmm. in that I think even trying to decide which ology we want to carry water for mm-hmm. is the wrong approach for a citizen of the kingdom of heaven who hopefully would transcend the transient ephemeral <laughs> ologies that will all pass one day. And if we truly are Bible-believing Christians – I would think maybe the best idea to figure out what economic model we should find most appealing is maybe look into the words of Scripture. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but for a Bible-believing mm-hmm. Christian, I would think that might be at least some common bond of those of us who love the Bible to work from what the mind of God is on this topic. Okay. And that's what I do in the book. Sure. And I agree with you. You do. That's very clear. You do. And, and this is one of the things I said to you in an email, that you seem to be constantly asking your reader to come up with some kind of understanding of economics, you know, by taking the Bible seriously, reading what the Bible has to say, this is a constant appeal. I felt it. Well, I've got to come up with mm-hmm. some kind of answer. And I couldn't. I cannot. Um, so you're mm-hmm. presenting us as readers with an impossible task, it seems. You are so deconstructing capitalism that all we have to put in its place is some kind of I mean, this gets into trouble straight away because you, huh. you even deconstruct the term socialist, don't you? And uh, mm-hmm. you criticize the way it's used by so many people as being tantamount to communism. That, that, that's not right. Or, but- or devil, <laughs> devil worshiper. That's usually the term. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can, can I help yeah. uh, Brother Julian for you and mm. for potential readers yeah, go on. to make this try to make this clear? Mm. If they want me to give them an off-the-shelf ideology or a substitute one, All I'm going to tell them is that if it's short of what God directly showed, how an orderly, healthy economy would be, then I am doing them a disservice to give them some other secular academic ology. What I will say, if I could encapsulate what I think you read in my book, quoted directly from Scripture, was the one economy that God set up himself for a society was an economy – that had several essential elements. There was a marketplace. People went and bought and sold and named their prices and did all of these things. So if you want to call that capitalism, I sort of, it's sort of a pre-capitalism, except you could argue that the plains of Shinar was where capitalism really was born. Uh, but the essential elements that have been decoupled, and I talk about the historical figures that targeted our clergy mm. to excise from our understanding and belief was the fact that the essential elements that God demanded 
in the Mosaic Law as part of a society to function under were some principles such as the, the Sabbath year, which was a year to respect the environment and to let the land rest and recover. And it, it was sending a message that, you know, in your desire to get ever more wealthy and to draw more out of the land, just like I ask you to do a Sabbath once a week not to work, he also says your instruments you have, like your land, which is your main wealth source, let it rest today. Have faith that you can let it rest and also let the stranger, the immigrant, the different person, the widow, poor people, freely have their way with the land. Have them come and eat and have their fill. And if you think about it in terms we're normally used to in our modern culture, that basically sort of comes out to an equivalent of about a 15% tax just for the poor and the uh, underprivileged in our society. Mm. Where you're taking the, the wealth and the goods that you had you know, in their day, and you made that available for them, for their needs. And God said this is not negotiable. This is not something if you feel like it right. or if you feel like you want to do some charity, you know, if on a whim or if it's Christmas Eve and you're feeling guilty – to go to it. No, this is something regularly scheduled that you do. And this really was a sign of faith in God that you do that. And the, the other principle that's even more challenging to our modern sensibilities was the year of Jubilee. Yeah. And, and I hate to tell my fellow Christians, but the year of Jubilee was an unvarnished, God-initiated means of wealth redistribution. Mm. The more proper term would be, would be wealth restoration. Because I think the only rational determination you can see on why God put those as absolutely essential parts of their society was that under an unregulated market, essentially all of the goods of a society are going to end in the hands of an ever smaller few. And in fact, that's what happened in Israel because they decided not to follow those principles. And as I mentioned, quoting directly from Scripture, God says this was the very reason – that they were sent into captivity in Babylon. Yes, the idol worship was bad and some of the other things, but he says verbatim in Scripture that I am going to let the land rest for every single Sabbath year that you missed. And so they were put in time out in Babylon for every single year. They did not let the environment restore. And the Jubilees that they all missed of restoring the land to the original owners. And, and there was a fair equitable treatment where you prorated the amount of you know, what you paid for land until the year Jubilee coming. Basically, God enforced his own Jubilee when he sent them to Babylon, and all of the land was given by no less than Nebuchadnezzar, uh, prompted by God directly back to the poor, to who it belonged. So that may not fit our political sensibilities. It may not be what we have been raised as our values, but they're God's values. Mm. And we, we have to change Scripture otherwise. Mm. Yeah, and I, I accept that as a justified theological interpretation of history by the Hebrews, and uh, God does have these kinds of dealings with his world. And I agree, we've got to have some form of redistribution of wealth. It cannot be concentrated in the hands of the 0.01%. This is crazy. This is the direction of tyranny and mass poverty. I, I see this. Well, I understand um, how however, people would, equ would equate that with stealing. Yeah, but, yeah, I'm but, sorry. Well, yeah, say but, your I, point. I, I'm sorry. I, well, my point is, you know, we can look at the Bible and we can see these principles, but we are faced with a situation in which, I mean, you do bring up party politics in this book and you criticize people who overly champion the presidency of Donald Trump. 
Okay, so you do bring in the party political dimension to this because at elections, we are faced in this country as well, we are faced with a political choice, a party political choice. And actually, what you may respond to this, and certainly where I'm coming from asking this question is, you know, perhaps we should abstain altogether. Is that what you're saying, that we should abstain from party political involvement whatsoever? Vote for nobody, because nobody is going to measure up to the kinds of standards that we see in Scripture. Not Is that what you're saying? Not at all. Uh, the, the book is not intended to suggest to go for candidate A versus candidate B today. It's it, that the intent is not to wade into the minutia of the, the mess that we consider modern politics. Mm. But I also say that we've been given a privilege of participatory Republican-style democracy in, in our era, which is a unique era in world history. You know, only a handful have been able to experience that in their existence. Mm -hmm. But with it becomes a responsibility. Uh, and, and what I assert is that in the, quote, good old days in past and world history, most people lived as serfs, the overwhelming or indentured servants or what have you. You know, they had kings and the kings were unilateral in their decisions. And so in the Bible, be they Hebrew, be they Gentile throughout history, God has certain expectations for the rulers of nations. And that's the other part in addition to these other principles I mentioned to you. Um, and and just, just to close the loop here on this thing I, I mentioned about the years of Jubilee, um, and that people would say, well, that's stealing. You know, first of all, they need to blame God for that. But what I would say is it's not technically a redistribution of wealth. It's really more a restoration of wealth. Okay, okay. Because what God makes very, very clear, what our own data confirms since then— is that when there is no watchdog to be aware of what's going on by the economically powerful in society, all sorts of techniques will be used to centralize the wealth in individual hands. And it's not because they're such wonderful geniuses or such inspirational people, but they have all sorts of techniques, and one of which is buying their elected officials. Well, yeah. Uh, rather than being regulators, they actually are in cahoots with this kind of thing. And so, in fact, I, I would just say um, that people who have supported the more, you know, a traditional royalist, conservative, uh, you know, monarchist, Tory, conservative, whatever you call it um, – really, they have believed in a redistribution of wealth because when you look at the hard data – Wealth has been redistributed in an accelerating pace from the poor to the rich. Mm, and mm -hmm, so there has mm, been a redistribution mm. of wealth, but it's just been in the other direction. In America, at least, most of that redistribution happens through very, very lucrative, uh, high-profit contracts yep. that are given by the government to large corporations that have high fees, high salaries, all sorts of tax deductions and credits – for investment credits. Mm. This is a kind of welfare that we never seem to acknowledge in the Christian circles that I'm around, the conservative circles, that recognize there is a welfare. Because, in fact, most of the people who I'm with that, that are so against any government assistance have recently just cashed their socialism welfare check that our government gave to everybody. And they were more than happy to cash that free money check while denouncing other people. But the other thing that he makes a point of is that the controllers of the marketplace in Scripture will put their thumb on the scales. They will use different dishonest weights and measures, in essence fraudulent practices in the marketplace, to deceive 
the common purchaser or they will deny proper wages to the worker. Mm. And this is a major, major topic yeah. in the Old Testament and the prophets. Sure. I agree with your critique. And uh, obviously, yeah. I agree with what the scripture says. And so I can see that's based upon what the scripture says. But how does this relate to the actual business of engaging in the politics of the real world? I mean, you have a lot of criticism for people who, as I say, are followers of Donald Trump. Now, when I look back uh, a few years back to the situation where we had Donald Trump or right. uh, Hillary Clinton, I put myself in the imaginative shoes of a US citizen. How would I have voted? Mm -hmm. Well, I can tell you that I would, if I was to vote for one or the other, <laughs> I'm not sure I would have voted for one or the other, but if you forced me to vote for one or the other, I would have voted for Donald Trump mm -hmm. because I would have seen certain aspects of what he was promising to do now whether he's delivered is another matter but what he was promising to do that i would have thought well yeah that's got to be better than the alternative there and yet you seem to be very hard on people who did vote for donald trump yet i can see why mm -hmm. they did in many ways mm -hmm. i think it would have been a lot worse if hillary clinton had been in charge not because i'm you know i'm a republican i'm out of this i'm, right. I'm a british citizen but you know at right. least we're not at war with iran well I, we um we value in America, probably like other places, the privacy of our individual votes and what we do. But I'm going to voluntarily waive that and explain to you because mm -hmm. it'd be right for somebody to know how I handled that situation. Mm -hmm. um, I may have taken the cop-out approach because of the sad, um, pragmatic inevitability of the kinds of elections we have with an electoral college. Mm. With the Electoral College the way it is, and that's why we had a, a man with a minority of the vote get elected president, <laughs> uh, had millions of less votes than, than his peer, was that our elections, because of the Electoral College, they don't become a national election, but they're really a swing state election. Uh, we probably have about seven or eight states that are in play that really decide our president. Uh, the other states are either hard red or hard blue states. And whoever is the minority, either, you know, a minority conservatives or liberals and either, um, their votes are essentially worthless. It's winner take all for the electoral votes. And so like the majority of Americans, if you're in a minority in your particular state, your vote in terms of really turning the election aren't that strong. However, in a participatory democracy, as I was trying to get to earlier and probably diverted myself, I feel that all of the commands to the ruler or leaders in the Bible now go to you and me because we become the leaders of our country. And what we elect are proxies, our regents to serve in our stead that we handpick. So all of the commands and the warnings that God gives now come upon us. Uh, I know you're conversant, probably the sons of God, like uh, Mike Heiser talks about, and the B'nai Elohim, and things like that. Yeah. You know, it wouldn't be a complete book in my circle if they didn't make their way somehow into this narrative. They are in there, yes. And in Psalm 82, the thing that I pointed out to Mike Heiser one time, he's a friend of mine, and he sort of, I felt like he gave me a blank stare over it, was that there's actually a political aspect to that narrative, as brief as it is in Psalm 82. And the reason being is if you accept his premise, and I, and I do, that there are what are called in the Bible, Benai Elohim, or sons of God, who were tasked with administering over the Gentile nations, and of which he calls to task. If you read that chapter carefully, you will find that the things he holds them for are for the lack of care, for the stranger, for the widow, for the poor, 
and their exploitation. And he says that's how they're going to be judged and they're going to die like men, as Jesus later quoted. But it was for those reasons. And that's something you'll never hear in most of our fellow Christians' discussions. What will God hold those creatures accountable for? Mm. Well, it's because they didn't take care of the poor and the widow. He didn't mention anything about the usual lineup of sins that we all you know, mm. get in a fuss over. These are the things that repeatedly, through the prophets, through his own writings, he goes over and over again. So if I want to have the mind of God, I have to get my mind in on what are the weightier matters he has. So the care of the poor, the stranger, and basically the vulnerable in our society has got to be the first priority in my life. And so when I look at the values of the person that I'm looking at, it gets very complicated. You get down to two people, you got two flawed people. And what I did, since I realized my vote was not going to change the election, I voted for another candidate who was running who actually had some of the similar values I had without some of the baggage. Now, were they perfect? No, they weren't. But I felt an obligation for the privilege of being in a participatory democracy that I had an obligation to participate in the process, if anything, out of gratitude. I recognize all of the conspiracy stories about voting and fraud and all that kind of stuff, and we need to hold them accountable. But going back to the other commands that God himself said through the prophets was that government was designed to be an opposing coercive force to oppose the coercive power of what's, what he calls the great city Babylon, which is the overwhelming economic power that, as it says in Revelation 18, rules over the souls of men, right. as well as all other commodities. And so God is very pragmatically, until he comes to reign with justice, he set a very, very pragmatic balance of power. And so my main beef is when people say, we need to take away government is evil. This is the very government that God established to try to keep things halfway together until he gets here, knowing full well that you're going to have corruption and evil kings and things like this. But it's meant to be what runs things until he gets here. And we have a responsibility for it to do what it says very clearly he wants Gentile governments to do. Make sure there's not dishonest weights and measures in the marketplace, exploitation of the poor in the marketplace, to make sure that the poor get justice in the courts. This is not me saying it. This is God saying it through the prophets. Mm -hmm. So those are my priorities. Now, that's not what I believed for 50 years of my life. I believed I was a good boy, good God-fearing conservative boy, and I did what I was told. And what I was told was what God would want me to do. And the people who told me that were strangers, national Christian media figures, national figures on national media, and the people who are around me shook their head, and by peer pressure, I accepted that rather than trusting the narrative that was in Scripture. Hmm. And so part of it in my book is to say, here are some people maybe you've not heard of, but these were the people who trained the clergy and the media figures who did tell you what to believe. And they say very clearly here, here are their motives, here are the letters, here are the information that said, and it was not to elevate God. It was not to elevate the message of the gospel or the Great Commission or anything else. Mm. They had a more near-term selfish, personal profiteering motive, and they tried to take the precious gospel and use it and exploit it for their own purpose, That's, which is what God says is the teaching of Baal. That we will come and on to. Baal. 
We will come on to that in a moment. And as I said before, that's the most fascinating part of your book. Um, before we do that, let me just lastly run this by you. Are you effectively saying that if we choose to use the privilege that we have to take part in voting uh, or not to take part, you know, voting, I understand voting to be a power. We exercise that power or we do not. The privilege is having the power. So whether we vote or whether we don't, we hold our leaders, we try to hold our leaders as much as we have power to do that, accountable to these moral biblical principles that you've just mentioned. Mm-hmm. It does matter how we vote in terms of our own conscience, but that's not really the be all and end all of it. We make a decision based upon the package of policies that there we say, okay, right. or we don't vote, or we say, that's the best that I can do in this situation. And now, all of our political engagement is to try to hold those people accountable to what we believe. Is that effectively what you're saying on a practical level? Well, and and the, the key point in doing that very difficult task is it forces us to understand what are our priorities. Mm. What are the priorities of the values of God? A classic fundamentalist will not grasp that there are such things as the weightier matters of the law. When they see the Bible as no more than a legal text, that every single line in that Bible is independently legally enforceable, and if it's in fact a good contract, which is basically what a covenant theology is, if it's a good contract, then none of those lines will contradict. And what I'm asserting is that as mature believers in Christ, what he says is, and this is the lips of Jesus saying, there are weightier matters of the law. And when you render judgment and hopefully righteous judgment, what a judge has to do is often see conflicting rights between the different parties. And he has to decide what are the weightier matters of the law. And if we're going to be mature uh, followers of Christ and if we're being groomed to be leaders in the new heavens and the new earth, then I think he wants us to learn how to have the mind of Christ you know, even like we see the wisdom of Solomon and his judgments and things, we are to learn how to prioritize what are the weightier matters. Mm-hmm. And in that case, I have to admit the Bible is not ambiguous. The weightier matters to the Lord, well, he says, are justice, mercy, and faith. Mm-hmm. Throughout the Old Testament, the consistent message given to the prophets is that the poor, the stranger, the alien or immigrant, and the vulnerable of all types— take premium importance to God. So my ultimate goal is to not please men, even though I'm by nature a people pleaser, and it hurts and wounds me every time I get a critical comment on my blog or on a show or whatever. It really does. I mean, because I I want everybody to like me. But ultimately, if I'm going to mature in Christ, I have to decide that I want God to like me more than anybody else. And I have to get his well-being over my pastor or my Christian role models, or even my family members. And one thing I know on how to get on God's good graces is always give extra grace to the poor and to the vulnerable of all stripes. That would reflect in the very hard political decisions Mm -hmm. with the finite number of candidates we have, which one looks out for the vulnerable better of all of them. And that's the way I know I can be in God's good graces. I don't think he'll ever judge anybody by saying, you were too kind to the poor. No, no, no. What's interesting about that is that, therefore, what you're saying does not wed you to a political party, to a political ideology. Because I'm going through my mind, as I was reading the book, it was all the time, it was going through my mind, oh, this means you are a, in inverted commas, you are a socialist. 
Right. But there would be plenty of people, let's say, and, and this is not my own political stance speaking here. I'm just speaking on behalf of, right. of what somebody might say. You know, there might be plenty of conservative, you know, right of center voters here in the UK who would genuinely believe that the best way in order to raise the living standards of people who are in poverty would actually be through the, the actions of the market. And uh-huh. they would say, you know, in the long run, a more socialist, you know, classic socialist way of trying to achieve this would lead to greater poverty for all, et cetera. And they would with genuine conscience go in and vote that way. Right. Um, so you are not wedding what you say to a particular ideology. Mm-hmm. What I'm getting from what you're saying now particularly is that we should internalize the messages of the gospel and then mm-hmm. make the best decisions in a clear conscience that we can in a practical right. political way. And that's actually going to look different because we're different people. Right. Uh, in other words, like I say, we don't carry water for any kind of man-made ideology. Mm. You know, we may be dance partners in a one-time and instant in place if it serves a heavenly call that's sufficient. But there should be no wedding or ideology. That's where we get problems. Hmm. We feel like we got to defend one political party or the other or yes. one other kind of thing. Yes. And then, then we start compromising. Then we start rationalizing. Well, these people are scoundrels. They're blatantly immoral. They're dishonest people hmm. by lifestyle. But they're one of our guys. They may be a yeah. <laughs> SOB, but they're our SOB. Right, right. And that's where we get into trouble. Absolutely. Can we, I, ju- we, can we I jump in? we got to be willing to drop this... anybody like a <laughs> – Sorry, I'm going to jump Sorry. in because this is something I'm going to – all right, I'm going to reveal myself here. Because I think this is a good example of what I understand you to be saying. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have been – in a party political sense, I have been apolitical for donkey's years. And I've <laughs> many, many times not voted. Yeah. In the last election, I did vote, and people may be surprised, I think some will be surprised and some not surprised, to know that I voted for the Labour Party, uh-huh. which actually goes against both the, the way I was brought up, I just happened to be brought up in the south of England, it tends to be a Tory area, uh, and against my own financial interests, because I'm quite sure that had the Labour Party come to power, there'd be higher taxes, etc. But I voted for Jeremy Corbyn because he was the anti-war candidate. Right, And so I made that decision because in my mind at the time, the overriding importance for me was we must not go to war. Right. And I was not seeing that in any other candidate. Right. So I, in a sense, I voted against my own best interests for what I thought. I mean, he's an atheist as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, what I thought coincided with what I understand to be God's priorities. Right. So is that the kind of politics, you know, in terms of right. party political engagement, if we're going to do that, that's the kind of politics you're talking about? Well, let, let me let me just say that um, the the whole principle of what the real meaning of the word profane is, the the word of the meaning of profane is not dirty or filthy or shameful. Mm. It just means that it's not sacred. Right. The things that are sacred are the things like in the temple that were cleansed for a specific spiritual use for God in certain things. Most of the world in society and the things we do would be classified as profane. Mm. That does not mean that they're not important, and it doesn't even mean that they're not God-created. I mean, there are certain biological functions that we do every day that seem to be sort of nasty, and we do it privately, and we don't talk about it. But you know God made it, and we have to do it, and if if you don't do it, you've got a problem. And I would say that's probably why that's a good corollary to politics. Uh, if if we were living in a totalitarian environment or a kingdom with a king, we could be like the early Christians and wash our hands of that responsibility because we'd have no say over it. 
Many of these things weren't talked about in the New Testament because they were under imperial Rome, mm. and also they didn't have the responsibility that came with it. Unfortunately, you and I are in a participatory democracy era where it comes with all the rights and then it comes with all the responsibilities. So you made that very clear decision. You had candidates that you didn't get to handpick yourself. There was a collective decision, and you know that's completely right. It wouldn't be right if you picked the proxy for everybody else in your country. Everyone else should have a say. And so what you end up with is some kind of bland, vanilla, peanut butter that makes everybody collectively unhappy. (laughs) And that's not very good, but you have to pick somebody. And, you know, when we pick our garbage man, we don't do a theological litmus test. We watch to see how well does he pick up garbage. And our politician is not much different than the garbage man. We sacredize what is the profane. And I don't say that it's profane in the sense we shouldn't participate any more than all the other profane things we have to participate in. Is that when we sacredize it Mm. Ah, and we give them some kind of holy orders, then we're really looking into trouble. Because we have some pretty profane people here that people have sacredized, Mm. and it drags down the church. It totally destroys our testimony the purity and the clarity of the gospel mission, when we really need to remember is that we're picking garbage men. And whether it's a garbage man or a politician, I want somebody who's about as honest as I can find in those crooked, ambitious people who um, has shown as much integrity of the limited choices that I have. Uh, sorry, you're beginning to break up. I'm sorry about this. Who looks out for people that mostly impact And as you can hear, that's where things started to go wrong. I was hoping that the signal breakup or whatever it was would improve and that we'd be able to finish the interview in the usual way, but unfortunately that just did not happen and so we basically had to end there. Which was a shame because I had a number of things that I wanted to say, a number of things I wanted to ask him, um, and of course I was hoping that we'd be able to go into some of the historical data that Dr. Bennett provides, which, uh, as I say, in my view, is the most interesting part of the whole book, quite a big chunk of the book, actually. Uh, but that's the way things go sometimes. So we agreed that we would have another chat to go through some of that information, um, and I stress some of that information because it's far too much to try to go into all of it so you know just enough to give an idea of some of the historical background to dr bennett's main arguments in the book when that will come out i'm not quite sure at the moment anyway i hope you enjoyed today's conversation and i hope you'll go over to mikebennettbooks.com to get a copy of the book two masters and two gospels volume one to be challenged, as I certainly was when reading it, to be surprised perhaps by some of the influences on Christianity, or I suppose more correctly, I should say, some of the influences on that particular flavour of Christianity that Dr. Bennett is addressing in the book. He's not addressing all of Christianity, because of course that's a a very broad church indeed. Um, And perhaps like me sometimes to disagree, because there are moments in the book when I find myself in definite disagreement, or just more often, you know, not quite seeing eye to eye with him. I mean, as I I wrote in an email to him after finishing the book. Let me just quote this email. Um, I find myself in definite agreement with you 38.6% of the time, then in disagreement 11.4% of the time, but 60% of the time I really do not know quite what to think. I am, however, 110% sure that people should read the book. So there it is. I do recommend it as a challenge, a surprise, an education, a relief actually. In some respects, I found it a relief to see a fellow Christian writing in this way, especially um, highlighting the dangers of civil religion in our cultures. 
all of that i would say so do please do avail yourself of a copy anyway that's it for now but for a heads up on tmr film reviews in the pipeline we have uh, roundtable review discussions on silent running the environmentalism post-apocalyptic science fiction film from 1972 uh, thx1138 how about that for a title thx1138 which uh, is george lucas's first feature film uh, from 1971 and in due course Minority Report, which I'm particularly looking forward to uh, when we can get to that, because it's one of my favourite films. So those will be whenever they happen to be as punctuations between the interviews here at TMR, um, and those will be with a you know a selection of the usual crew: Mark Campbell, GK, Frank Johnson, Johnny Iron, uh, maybe Anthony Rotuno, uh, maybe others. I don't know. Things keep evolving on the roundtable front. Anyway, that really is it for now. So I hope you've enjoyed today's program. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles of. The mindrenewed.com, and I look forward to speaking to you again in the very near future. <laughs>